All right. Good morning again, everybody. It is uh, the church season known as Advent. And uh, it's traditionally Advent is a time when Christians sort of wait expectantly and they, they wait to sort of celebrate and remember Christ coming to the earth the first time, kind of this, this preparation, the season that leads up to Christmas. And so it's a, sort of a time of anticipation and waiting in that sense. But it's always been historically as well for the last 2,000 years. It's always been a season for the church as well who are, are waiting for Christ to come again. It's sort of a reminder of the way that Christ has come to earth, right? He came in the, in the, in the form of a, a baby born in a barn, and he lived uh, and, and died and rose again for us. But then it's also a reminder that, you know, this is a day of grace. This is a day of celebration because there's hope because he will come again and he will make all things right. He will restore all things. And uh, it's going to be uh, pretty amazing for those who have put their trust in him, right? So it's this, it's this time of sort of waiting, this, this expectation that, hey, God is faithful. He keeps his promises. He's come before. He's coming again. And I can't wait. And so, uh, so I think that's pretty cool. Um, but it's, it's one of those things that uh, as you read through the Christmas story, as you read through the prophecies that are written about Christ, as you read about the history in that day, uh, there's this seeming silence uh, from God. All of God's people have been waiting for him to do something, when he, for him to, to kind of bust in for him to deliver on his promises. In fact, uh, I was thinking about it this week and thinking, man, uh, before that first Christmas, people had been waiting for 400 years. They'd been waiting from the time of the the last prophet that was was saying and kind of proclaiming, hey, a savior is coming. It's gonna be great, right? This this Messiah, this promised one is gonna come and he's he's gonna set people free, right? He's gonna set the captives free. He's gonna bring good news for the poor. It's gonna be an amazing. He's going to usher in a new era in our lives. And so they kind of set up, set this up and there's this anticipation and people are like excited. Oh, cool. God's going to come through again. It's going to, he's going to set us free. He's going to be our God. And then there's silence for 400 years while the people wait and wait and wait and wait for the Messiah, this promised one to come. We're launching a new series today, a three-week-long series uh, called In the Meantime, Waiting on God to Show Up. And this whole series is going to address those times in our lives when we are praying and hoping, maybe like the people of Israel, the, the, the Jews of that Old Testament so, some, some 2,000 years ago, times in our lives when we're praying and hoping and waiting, but for whatever reason, God doesn't seem to show up or answer in the ways that we want him to or in the timeline that we want him to. What to do when God seems late or doesn't cooperate with our plans or feels distant or whatever. And so for the next three weeks during the season of Advent, we're going to be looking at the Christmas story and some other passages from the Bible as well. And we're going to talk about what to do in seasons where you're waiting on God to show up, waiting for God to bust in. Now, the question I I want to pose to you this morning, and I think I know the answer, but how do you feel about waiting? (laughs) How do you, a bunch of us are here and we're like, oh man, I love waiting, right? Is, is that sort of the thing? <laughs> I don't, I personally, I am not a big fan of waiting. I don't really like to wait. I don't like it when I get stuck behind somebody that's, you know, kind of accelerator challenged at a, at a long, you know, red light. They're like, I don't like that. I don't like to stand in line at the bank, 
I don't really care for that. I don't like to. I don't like it when I go to the gas station and all the pumps are filled, and you have to sit there and wait. Right? I, I, I'm just not a fan. I, I don't really care for waiting that long. How about you? Now, I, I was thinking about it and thinking, well, I'm going to, in sort of a way to kind of all of us to get a gauge on how much you like waiting, I put together a few questions to kind of help. I guess they're multiple choice. So a little pop quiz this morning for you, okay? So the first one, I'm going to just paint a couple scenarios. The first one is, let's say you go to a doctor's office uh, and you wait there. You're in the waiting room. You've told them you're there. You filled out all your paperwork. You sit down and you wait and you wait and you wait. It's been an hour now, an hour, right? And you're like, why is it that if I'm late, you know, I get charged for the appointment, but they can take their, I mean, like all this stuff is going on. You've been waiting there for an hour. So my question is, how do you respond? Here's a few options, right? A, this is how you respond. You're grateful for the chance to catch up on the 2008 copies of Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, or Time, right? Any, anybody there? How about this? B, you tell other patients that you have some sort of highly uh, communicable disease and a fatal disease in an attempt to empty out the waiting room and get you in line faster. Or C, maybe you force yourself to hyperventilate to get immediate attention. If, if you answer B or C, the chances are you don't really like waiting that much. Right? How about this one? Here's another Here's another option. Let's say you go to your favorite restaurant and you have to wait an unusually long amount of time uh, to get to even get seated and then even longer to get service. How do you respond? How do you feel about that? Are you grateful for the chance to work up an appetite? Uh, B, you tell other diners that you are, uh, are the owner and ask them to eat and get out? <laughs> or C, you vow that from now on you're only going to eat in restaurants that have a drive through service, right? <laughs> something like that. You're only going to eat at McDonald's or Culver's or something from that point forward. Now, those are just kind of, uh, just meant it for fun. A couple of uh, options. Those are little things that all of us deal with, right? All of us have to wait, and we get a little irritated sometimes, get a little cranky. He might start talking. If you're driving, I start talking to people. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure, take your time, right? I mean, you're kind of whatever, but, but there's other kinds of waiting, too. There's, there's more serious forms of waiting, too, aren't there? I mean, there's the waiting of a single person who's been waiting and waiting to see if God really has somebody for him that they can marry and, and be with for, for the rest of their lives, there's a kind of waiting that childless couples sometimes experience when they are trying to have kids and month after month after month after month, they are waiting and seemingly there's no answer. There's the waiting of somebody that longs to have a, a, a meaningful work experience, so, to invest their lives in something that matters, but it doesn't seem to happen. There's the waiting of uh, deeply depressed people that, that long for a day that maybe they can wake up and want to live. Right? There's waiting that seems to, so, serious kinds of waiting sometimes. There's waiting that happens. It's a spouse that's trapped in a hurting marriage and it seems like what, despite their best efforts, nothing ever seems to change. There's waiting that happens in nursing homes sometimes where people are waiting to die. There's significant forms of waiting that we deal with in our lives, don't we? Lewis Smedes puts it like this. I thought this is an amazing quote. He says this, Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame that we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. We wait for a not yet that feels like a not ever. Waiting, he says, is the hardest work of hope. 
As you read through and look through the pages of scripture, I was amazed as I was thinking about it this week at, uh, at the kind of waiting that seems to be normal in the Christian life and, and in the lives of even the writers of scripture over thousands of years. Waiting seems to be the norm. There's this little annoying th- phrase that you, st- you keep seeing over and over and over throughout the pages of God's book, a God that is faithful, a God that promises and keeps his promises, but not yet, right? He says, wait on the Lord. Listen to some of these. Psalm 37, verse seven and 34 says this. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him, patiently, And then he goes on and says, wait for the Lord and keep his ways. He will exalt you to inherit the land. I was thinking about a God coming to Abraham, right? An old man, about 75 years old or so at the time. And God says, Abraham, I've got good news for you. I know you've been childless, you and your wife, but I have good news for you today. I'm going to go on record and promise you that you are going to be the father of a great nation, I mean, it's going to be amazing. You're going to have a son and you're going to have so many kids and grandkids and great grandkids and on and on. It'll be like the sand of the seashore. You're going to be a huge nation is going to come from you. He says, mark my words, you're going to be a father. And so Abraham, you can imagine, is excited. They've been wanting to have a child forever, but they waited and they waited and they waited and they waited. Want to guess how long they waited for? 24 years. If he's 75, do the math. (laughs) About 75, you wait another 24, 25 years. You wait till he's 100 years old, practically, right? But there's this, this whole theme that you see over and over and over of waiting where God makes a promise, but doesn't just instantly fulfill it. He says, now wait. Wait, you can trust me, but wait. You go on and you, you, you think about Israel and God says to Israel, to his people, uh, that they're going to be a great nation, that God is going to actually take them out of Egypt where they're being held as slaves. He's going to set them free. He's going to take them and they're going to be a great nation. But you know what? He doesn't deliver on that promise right away either. Instead, they wait. Want to guess how long they wait? They wait for 400 years before he fulfills that promise. Then finally, the time has come. They raise, God raises up Moses and he says, I'm going to use you to lead these people out of Egypt and, and into the promised land. The only problem is that there's a little detour in the wilderness. And so they're going to have to wait. And they wait for f- another 40 years after that. Kind of follow along through, through uh, history and there's, you see waiting kind of peppered throughout the Old Testament. Finally, you get to the New Testament and uh, there, there's this great promise that's, that's been promised, right? That, that a Messiah, a Savior, uh, the Redeemer is going to come from God. And God's people waited for generation after generation after generation when God seemed silent. And then strangest of all, when the Messiah come, finally did come and God sent the Savior down to this earth, you want to know what? Most people missed him because they were expecting somebody else. They were expecting somebody more magnificent or more flashy or uh, whatever. Somebody that was going to come and overthrow Rome and kind of be a big conquering warrior. We'll talk about that a little bit more uh, next week. He wasn't what they thought. There was only a few people that were waiting for him were the only ones that recognized the Messiah when he came. 
You can read about it in Luke 2 as part of the Christmas story. I'm going to read a couple. There's two people in, in particular I'm going to mention. Uh, Simeon and Anna. I'm going to read right from Luke 2. People that actually recognized the Messiah, they had been waiting for him. And as a result, they got to behold God's plan. They got to, they got to actually hold the Savior in their arms. They got to bless him and worship his amazing thing. Luke 2 verse 25 says this. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was, what does that say? Waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts and when the parents brought the child Jesus to do for him what was custom of the law required, uh, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you uh, may now dismiss your servant in peace for my eyes have seen your salvation. And you, uh, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. He says, Simeon says, I've been waiting my whole life and now the wait is over, God. Simeon says in verse 36, we are told about another person who was just waiting for this Messiah, for this savior to come. Verse 26 says, there was also a prophetess, uh, Anna, uh, the daughter of uh, Fenuel uh, of the tribe of Asher. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84 she never left the temple, but worshiped uh, night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Israel. Quick, quick pause. When it, when it says, was looking forward to that, you know what that word literally means? It's the same word as we saw in the last one. It means to wait. Those that had been waiting for God to come and send the Savior and redeem his people. Verse 39, when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the, the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own, t- own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and, gr- and the grace of God was on him. So Anna comes and began to speak about Jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of God's people. And so Jesus finally comes at, and after 30 years of preparation, right? So, so the Savior comes in the form of a baby. And what did Jesus do for those 30 years? To be honest, we know hardly anything. We don't know hardly anything about those years. We have a, a couple of little verses about uh, him being in the temple. We know he was probably following in the footsteps of his father, a carpenter, you know, kind of thing. That's that's about all we know. He, there, was, there was sort of nothing. So even Jesus, when he came for 30 of his 33 years, he did what? He waited. He waited. This is God, right? God waited for the, his time to come, for the, for the right time. It's incredible. So Jesus finally begins his ministry. He starts healing people. He starts teaching. Crowds are coming, and you start getting people like John or like his disciples that would start coming up and say, is this it, right? Is, is this what we've been waiting for, Jesus? Like, is now the time? Are you going to come and bring your kingdom? Are you going to overthrow the Romans? Are you going to do all that we expected you to do? Even then, <coughs> sorry, that's got to be nice, amplified. <coughs> anyway, but even then, you know what? His disciples were still waiting. They they were still waiting and waiting. Even then, Jesus goes to the cross, right? And and his disciples are disillusioned, and they're like, what are we going to do? 
Three days later, he rises from the dead, and they think, man, this is it. Now Jesus is going to bring the hammer, right? He's going he's to kick out all these Romans. He's going to do everything that we hoped he would do. And this, he's got one more command that he gives them in Acts 1, uh, 4 through 5. This is what he tells his disciples at this point. He's, he's about ready to go up into heaven, and this is what happens. He says this, on one occasion while, while Jesus was eating with them after the resurrection, he gave them this command, don't leave Jerusalem, but want to guess what the word is that, it, that comes next, what verb it is? But, next slide. But wait, right? But wait for the gift my father had promised. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's like, even then, he's saying, wait. There's, there's this expectation of, yes, something great is going to happen. Something good is coming, but you're going to have to trust me for it. You're going to have to wait. You're going to have to take it by faith, so to speak. All the way through to the very end of the story in Revelation. All the way at the very end. There's, pop that next slide up if you would. There's uh, one more. Okay, did I not have the Revelation one in there? Anyway, all the way to the end of the story, the re- all the way to the book of Revelations, you get to the end and there's still this sort of expectation of, you know what? You're gonna have to wait. It says, uh, you know, there's this expectation of Jesus coming back. Jesus is coming. There's this hope that he will come and he will restore. He will make all things right. But in the meantime, we have to wait. Romans 8, which you, which you have up there, you can pop that in if you want. It says this, uh, it says, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, uh, we children of the Pentecost, we ourselves grown inwardly while we wait for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes in what, what they already have, what they can already see. But we have, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it patiently. We wait for it patiently. 43 times in the Old Testament alone, we are given the command to wait on the Lord. It runs all the way through, oh, this is where the Revelation one comes in, right? All the way through to Revelation. Even so, come Lord Jesus, we wait for you. We're waiting for you. Now, I think the obvious question as you, as you think of this, this major theme that seems to go through all the pages of God's book of waiting for his plans to be fulfilled, of waiting for all these things to happen is the question that I keep asking is, well, why? Right? Why in the world would God make his way? Why would God, God make promises to his people and then not just fulfill them right away? He is, after all, an all-powerful, all-good, all-loving God. Why wouldn't he just bring those things to fruition? Right. Rather than telling us it's coming, why not, boom, deliver? And although I have to say in all honesty, I can't fully answer that question. I don't think, uh, I think some of it is you got to chalk up to, I think God's uh, perspective and plans are beyond us. But I do think there's a theme and, and certainly something in here that we can know. I believe that at least in part, what's going on is this, that what God does in us while we wait is in fact as important as what it is that we're waiting for. Paul says in Romans 5, 4, he says, while we're waiting for God to set everything right, he says we suffer, but then he goes on to say, but we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character brings hope. God is producing these qualities in us while we wait 
And what that means biblically is that waiting is not just something we have to do to, before we get what we want, but waiting is actually part of the process of becoming who God wants us to be. It's just as important. What he's doing in us while we wait is just as important as the thing that we are waiting for. Waiting means that I must trust that God actually knows what he's doing. And that doesn't seem that far-fetched, does it? I mean, if, there, if God really is God, and he really is all-knowing, and we are not, then is it that far-fetched that God might, might have bigger, broader plans of what he's trying to do in the meantime, of ways that he's trying to stretch us and grow us? Is that such a stretch to believe? But I think it actually is for some of us, for all of us probably. And it must be patient trust. That is, trust that's waiting, uh, that's willing to wait again tomorrow and the next day and the day after that and the day after that. Trusting that God knows what he's doing. Trusting that he is working out his plans and purposes in us. Let me just kind of speak into this and push into this for a minute, if I can. It could be that some of us are here this morning and, uh, and maybe we have a longing in our heart for, for intimacy. Maybe, maybe we're feeling lonely in a kind of way that only really God can fill and only uh, another human being can't really uh, provide for and, and fill. But waiting is so hard. And so maybe there's a potential relationship right at your fingertips, that promise that, that maybe somebody can take away the loneliness. But maybe even you know that relationship is not honoring to God. Maybe you know in your heart that this is not the right person. Maybe that person doesn't uh, share your uh, ultimate uh, commitment to God and to following him and putting him first in your life. Maybe this person is putting pressure on you or whatever, and for whatever reason, you know that it's not right. But because of that pain and that emptiness and that longing, you're tempted to think, I've waited long enough, and I'm still, I've still got this longing, this emptiness in my soul, and so I'm going to take action. I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm going to pursue this relationship, even though I know it's wrong. I'm going to go after it just because I can't wait anymore. I want this longing to be filled in me. So I'm going to reach out for whatever satisfaction I can get in the here and now and not worry about the future, not worry about uh, right and wrong and all that kind of stuff. And I think what God's saying and what God's speaking through his scriptures and saying to us right now is if you're in that kind of situation, I think he's saying, will you wait on me? Will you trust in me? Will you courageously say, okay, God, all right, I will take you at your word. I will not just get hooked up with a relationship that I know would dishonor you and bring damage to the souls of all those involved. I will seek to build the best life the, by your design, the best life I can here and now, not even knowing what the future holds, not knowing when or if you will deliver on what I want you to in my life. But I will trust you and I will wait. There's some of us here maybe that have a dream or something that we want to accomplish in our lives, a mark that we'd like to make on this world. Something that could be something at work or something career-wise, family-wise, whatever. But for whatever reason, reasons you don't understand, what you're hoping will happen just isn't coming through the way that you thought it would. You don't know why, but it just hurts and leaves an ache in your soul. And if, if you're honest, you're tempted to try and force things to happen to sort of manipulate or scheme or use people or whatever to, to sort of make that outcome uh, come about in your life. 
Or maybe you're on the other end of the spectrum and you're tempted to just give up and give in to apathy and just sort of drift through your life. And I think, again, God's asking and he's pushing on us saying, would you have the patience to neither try to force it nor to quit, but to wait patiently for the Lord? Sure, continue to learn, continue to discover your giftedness, how God has wired you up, the plans he has for you. Humbly and openly receive feedback and coaching from others. Grow in the ways that you need to one step at a time. But would you trust in God's plan for you rather than try to jump in and take it for yourself? Maybe you desire change in some real significant area of your life, but it just hasn't come so far. And who knows, it may not come tomorrow. Maybe you're in a difficult marriage and you just want to bail emotionally, if not physically. But I think God is saying, would you wait for me? Would you focus on the love that you can give to your spouse, not the love that you think you've got to get back from your spouse? Maybe God is saying, will you let me love you? Will you, will you trust me enough to, to entrust yourself and your plans and the things that you're hoping for and longing for? Would you trust those into my care and would you wait? I always think of the picture, this picture I read a number of years ago from one of my favorite authors, Henry Nowen. He wrote a, a book called Sabbatical Journeys. And he, he, in this era of... Uh, kind of sabbatical for him. He had formed a relationship and, uh, with some trapeze artists and uh, he learned a lot of this group known as the Flying Rudellas. And he, he says this, one of the things that uh, they ended up telling Henry Nowen is that there's a real special relationship that exists between the trapeze artists. He said there's, there's two, primary, uh, two primary people or, or, or labels or whatever uh, in, in that kind of relationship. One is known as the flyer and one is known as the catcher on the trapeze. The flyer is the one that lets go and flies through the air and the catcher is the one that grabs them, right? That catches them and swings them back to the other side. As you might imagine, there's a real important relationship there, especially for the flyer. When the flyer is swinging high above the crowd uh, on the trapeze and the moment comes, he must let go. And then he arcs out into the air. His job, he says, is to remain as still as possible. And guess what the word is? And wait for the strong hands of the catcher to pluck him out of the air. The trapeze artist told Nowen that the flyer must never try to catch himself. Because if he does, that's where most accidents happen. But the flyer must wait in absolute trust. He says the catcher will catch him, but he must wait. He must be patient and wait. I think some of us might be in a vulnerable spot these days. You've let go of whatever it is that God has called you to let go of, but you you can't feel God's hands catching you yet. And you want to start flailing around. You're tempted to try and catch yourself. You're tempted to try and take matters into your own hands. But the question is, will you just wait in that kind of trust and let God catch you? Waiting requires patient trust. Will you wait on the Lord? Will you trust in him? It's hard, isn't it? It's kind of (laughs) un-American to approach life like that especially for those uh, among us that are more of the type A personalities. We're tempted to just take charge and try and force this thing, uh, take matters into our own hands. But instead, there are times in so many situations, most of the important situations in our lives, when you and I are called to just trust and to wait on God. Waiting reminds us that we are not in charge. When we go into a a doctor's office, uh, we go into a room, and what's it known as? the waiting room. 
Now, does the, does the doctor have to come out and wait in the waiting room? No, only the patients do. It kind of is a reminder that we're, not the, we're the ones that are in need of healing, right? And uh, there is one that hopefully knows more than us, <laughs> we're hoping anyway, we're banking on that, that uh, can help diagnose and can help, help us get better. It reminds us, right, that we are the weak ones, that we are the ones that are in need of help. The waiting room reminds us that we're not in charge. I'm the creature, right? But we're not just waiting around. This is not a, a, a waiting room. We're waiting on God, for God to do something in us. Therefore, we can trust in his wisdom and his timing. We can wait with confidence. I was thinking this week, one more, uh, actually two more verses, but one more uh, passage that I just wanted to, to mention. I just had this image going through my, my brain all week because we're talking about waiting um, that I want to share with you. It's from Isaiah 40, one of my favorite passages. It's awesome. Uh, Isaiah 40, verse, verses 30 and 31 says this. It says, even youths grow tired and weary and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope, it says, you want to guess what that word, that word hope literally means? means to wait expectantly, right? It's the same word. It's those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. Sometimes, the prophet says, sometimes when you wait on the Lord, you will mount up and you will soar with wings like eagles. It's a great picture, isn't it? Soar with wings like eagles. I read some great research this week on birds and flight and all that kind of stuff that I'm going to share with you. Uh, it's from a, uh, this, the guy that had done the research is named John Ortberg, great writer and pastor and all that kind of stuff. But he talks about there's three different sort of methods of flight. And he says this, the first one, uh, the most familiar one is flapping. He says, in flapping, birds just sort of keep their wings in constant motion to counteract gravity, right? Hummingbirds can do this 70 to 100 times a second. Does it take effort? Let's take effort. It takes a ton of effort, right? I mean, they you just, you have to just keep flapping all the time. If you stop flapping, what happens? <whistles> right? We're straight into the ground. It takes an exorbitant amount of energy. Flapping is what keeps you in the air. If you're a bird, it's a lot of work. It's awkward and clumsy at times, but you do a lot of flapping. I think sometimes we feel that way in life, don't we? We feel like, man, this is a lot of work. We're doing some serious flapping over here. I think you know what that feels like. I do too. Then there's the second, second kind of uh, flying. He talks about gliding. There's a smaller group. Most, most birds flap, but there's a smaller uh, groups that can glide for a while, which means they, they can get enough momentum, enough inertia going that they can actually stop flapping and glide for a short period of time. They can sort of coast for a while. It's pretty smooth, but because of gravity, it doesn't last for very long. Coasting doesn't last too long. It still takes some effort, but, but uh, you can kind of glide. He says, but there's actually a, the rarest form of all is known as soaring. There's only a few birds that can do it. An eagle is one of the few that can actually soar. A eagle's wings, an eagle's wings are so strong that it's capable of catching the rising air currents of warm air, thermo winds that go straight up from the earth where it's heated. Without moving a feather, in great majesty, an eagle can soar to great heights. It can soar right, right over the horizon, straight out of sight. They've been clocked up to 80 miles an hour without moving a feather. Isn't that incredible? 80 miles an hour. 
without flapping at all, just soaring on these invisible columns of rising air. It's an amazing picture. The writer says, for those who wait on the Lord, that these times of soaring will come. Sometimes when they soar, you just catch a gust of the spirit and you just get to, get to enjoy the ride. Jesus said the winds blow wherever it will and so it is with everyone born of the spirit. Some of us might be in an era these days of spiritual soaring right now and you can find yourself simply lifted up by God's power. God is answering prayers in jaw-dropping and you know, extravagant kinds of ways. Maybe God's using you in ways that leave, leave you regularly amazed. Maybe he's regularly giving you his power to rise above temptation and sin that's plagued you in the past and you're experiencing great levels of freedom. Maybe he's flooding you with his love and his strength and his wisdom beyond your own ability and you know it. You're just soaring right now. And if that's your condition, can I just say, be grateful, right? Be grateful, enjoy it. Do everything you can do to stay in the stream of God's spirit like that. Be real obedient to the spirit's leading. Keep praying, keep seeking him, keep depending on him. Don't be fooled into thinking that you are soaring of your own effort, of your own merit, because it's simply not true. Don't assume it's you. Maybe there are certain disciplines that are helping you to catch the Spirit's power, solitude, or memorizing scripture or whatever. Keep it up. Build on those things and enjoy the ride because you're soaring with God's Spirit. Second, sort of the next line uh, in these verses says some, and I think some of us in the room maybe identify with this, that we're not soaring, but, but we're just sort of running. We're just sort of um, gliding, if you will, and not growing weary. Now, if this is you, your life isn't exactly effortless right now. You may not see a whole bunch of miracles happening. You might have to do some flapping from time to time, but with determination, you know that you're running the race. You're staying the course. Uh, You feel frustration, but you also feel God's smile over your life sometimes. And if that's you, let me just encourage you to keep running, to keep faithfully obeying and serving and praying and giving. Don't try to fake or manufacture soaring, right? It's not something we can do on our own. Don't try to to act like you're experiencing more blessing than you really are. Don't compare yourself with uh, people that are soaring right now. Your time will come. But you just keep running. You stay faithful. You stay the course. Because when you run, you grow real strong. God's doing work in you behind the scenes. But then there's the third line. It says, some of us are not soaring. Some of us can't even run, but because of doubt or pain or fatigue or failure or crisis or whatever, all we can do is walk and not grow faint. Just walk and not keel over. I mean, for some of us, that's all we can do. We're just saying, God, I'll hang on, right? I, it, it doesn't seem to, like a fruitful season or a productive season in my life. I don't feel very triumphant. I've been hurt, I've been wounded, I've suffered lost, I'm confused, I'm alone, I'm in pain or whatever. But God, I won't let go. I'll, I'll, I'll obey you, I will keep walking because that's about all I can do. And if I can, I just want to say a word to those, those of us in that third group because it's real easy to look around at some of the fast runners or some of the eagles that are soaring and things are going great and it's, it's easy to look around and feel like a failure. It's, hard, it's a hard thing, I think, to be a walker in our culture when you're surrounded by people maybe that are racers or eagles. But sometimes I think walking is, is the best we got. It's all we've got to offer God. 
And I think God understands because uh, even Jesus, when he came to earth, I think he experienced all three of these things, didn't he? There were moments where he was soaring, right? The moment when he went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus and there had been a body that was sitting in the tomb, had been decomposing, and he spoke and his friend had life restored and he walked out. Man, that had to be a great day, didn't it? Can you imagine? I think he was soaring that day. He was probably smiling. I think one of those first moments after the resurrection when he appeared to his followers, <laughs> tell me that wouldn't have been awesome, right? There was, he was soaring on that day, right? There's some amazing moments that happened. But there were some times that he wasn't soaring. Sometimes that, uh, you know, maybe it was all he could do to keep running. I think sometimes, you know, you imagine him weeping over Jerusalem and over the rebellion, the defiance of the people that he'd come to save, the people that were missing him, that were missing it. And he kept, he stayed the, he stayed the course. He kept living out what he had, you know, his plans and, and what he'd been called to. But he wasn't, I don't think he was soaring on that kind of day. He was probably frustrated I think there were moments when his disciples were, you know, in all, in all honesty, idiots, right? <laughs> Jesus, you know, can I be the greatest in your kingdom, right? There's moments where <laughs> Jesus had to be like, man, you don't, even, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't even know what you're talking about. Moments where he, he kept running the race. He kept pouring himself into these guys. He, he kept doing what he was called to do. But in some ways, he was a little brokenhearted right, over, over these followers, over those that were around him. And then the moment came when I think even his running was the hardest. The day came when he had to carry his own cross. And on that day, the Bible says, not only was walking all he could do, but he fell. He picked that cross back up and all he could do was put one foot in front of the other and he could walk up that hill towards Calvary, towards the place of the cross, the place of the skull, where he would be crucified for the sins of humanity. And on that day, I don't think, I don't think it felt like he was soaring. <laughs> on that day, I'm not sure he was even running. On that day, I think walking was all he could do. The Bible says we have a Savior who was, who was who is able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And it's true. He has experienced all those things. I think sometimes walking is all we can do. But in those times, I just want you to hear this. I think walking is enough. Walking is enough. In fact, I want to say this. I think maybe it's when life is the hardest and we want so badly to quit, but, but we say to God, surely from the deepest part of our hearts and our beings, uh, you know, unsupported by soaring or the emotions of running or whatever, when we say, God, I won't quit. This is where I stand. I can do no other. No matter what, I won't quit. I'll just keep putting one foot in front of the other. I, you know, I will take up my cross. I will follow you, Jesus, even when it's hard, even when I'm not feeling it, even when on days when I am not soaring. I think maybe it's possible that God prizes 
our walking, even, even more than our soaring or our running. Because what we wait for is not more important than what happens in us while we wait. And because there will be a day that we will receive the ultimate reward for our waiting. And it's not the thing that we're waiting for, but it's Jesus himself, the one that we are waiting for, the one that we sing and say, come Lord Jesus, right? We wait, we wait for you because one day we will get to go home and be with him forever. And the one that we wait for is worth it. He is faithful. One day we will see that all of our waiting was worth it because of what he's doing in us and because of that longing of what will be revealed and what, what will be restored in those last times. He says, the strength of even youths will faint and they will become weary. Young people will stumble and fall exhausted. There's a limit to the strength of the strongest human being on their own, but they that wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up and soar with wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. Let's close in prayer. Father, that's our, our cry this morning. That's our desire. There are some of us that uh, are going through hard seasons and we are doing everything we can just to keep walking with you. And Father, I pray uh, for, for those that, that feel that way this morning, God, would you meet with them? Would you fill and strengthen them in their inner being with a sense of your presence, with a sense of your love and your faithfulness and your goodness to them? I pray even if the circumstances don't change that you would give them hope as they wait for you. That you might bring peace and strength, even a sense of your smile to them in these days. Father, for those that are, that are running, I pray that you'd meet us as well. I pray that you would encourage us, that you would uh, draw us deeper, that you would form and do your work in us, that you would form Christ in us as we wait as we wait with expectation, as we hope for longings to be fulfilled, for dreams to be, to be fulfilled, for marriages and, and uh, work situations and whatever to, to be realized in our lives. Would you draw us close? Would you keep us humble and teachable? May we be like clay in your hands, God. Would you form us and shape us and mold us and do your work? while we wait. And God, for those that may be experiencing soaring in these days, Lord, we give you all praise. I pray that you would teach us as a people to wait on you, to look to you, to find our joy and our love and our being, our identity, everything that we would look to you to find. that as we do, God, that you would cause us to mount up on wings like eagles, to soar, and to run and to walk as we earnestly wait for you. God, I pray for this uh, season of Advent as we are reminded of your coming the first time and even looking forward to your return. 
Would you draw our eyes to you? Would you come and have your way? May your kingdom come and your will be done, we pray. In Jesus' name.